the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Sarah, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Thank you so much. It's great to be on with you and good to hear your voice. Well, that's very kind. Your father and I are, are, are pretty close. I'm a big admirer of his, and he's been very kind to me. It's very mutual. I know he's a, a big fan of yours and uh, appreciates all that you do. Well, thank you for that. I want to ask you, if I could ask you one question, this is the question. I have many, but if I could ask you one, <laughs> this is the one it would be. What do you think of the of the press? I'm not kidding, and 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 I mean as people, uh, I, I think very low of them, but I have not interacted with them. So, what do you think of them? Well, I, I think that the press plays a very important role in society. Unfortunately, I think they have cheapened that role by making so much of their job to attack the president instead of to report the news. So often um, the lines have become completely blurred between news and opinion. It's very hard to find a story where you don't have the opinions of the press injected into the story anymore. And I think that's a big problem in journalism. As people, uh, there are certainly some very good people that happen to also be reporters. But unfortunately, a lot of uh, the loudest ones in the group, the ones that most people see, the people that uh, we hear from a lot, the Jim Acosta's of the world, I think they decided that they would rather be the story than report the story. And they decided the best way to do that was to go after this president and everyone around him day in and day out. And I think that that is uh, a true disappointment and a real shame and a disservice to the American people. So then would you say, and I have no idea how you will answer this, were you surprised when when you served as press secretary? Did, did you expect better? I definitely was surprised. I, I certainly knew that there would be tension. There's always been tension between the White House press corps and the administration. Um, however, the level of vitriol was different. The discourse was different. Even when we were traveling, I'll never forget, um, we were in another country, uh, some, a country that's very used to, I don't want to out this individual, So, but the communications director for a uh, European country that's used to dealing with the press said, I've never seen anything like this. He said, the difference between how they treat President Trump and how they treat President Obama is night and day. This is insane. I've never seen a press corps act like this. 
Um, it got where they even, you know, were rude to their colleagues, disrupting, interrupting one another, trying to get a question in in the briefing. It's one of the reasons the president decided to stop the briefings for a while is because they got into the just to be a total circus. And they were very disrespectful to the people that were speaking, myself included. And he just didn't feel like it was a good use and a good way to get the message out. So I'm going to put you on the spot. You said earlier there are some good people in the press. Can you name any? I could, but then I would ruin their reputation. If somebody like me says anything good That's about funny. somebody in the press, it'll probably hurt us uh-huh. both. Um, but, and again, there, I, I'm not saying that's the vast majority, but there are definitely some good people that still work in the press. Some of them, um, I think you could probably narrow down on your own, a couple of the good ones. But I think, again, one of the things that is such a challenge is finding people who are actually just reporting the news. And, um, a lot of times we would hear somebody say, but my story doesn't say anything. And I'd say, yeah, but the, the 50 tweets that you put out before noon do. And you can't separate that when you have a public account constantly attacking the president, attacking the people that work for the president, and then say, but this one, you know, 400-word story is is news. That, that You can't separate that. And I think that's a real problem. All right. So you can't, for understandable reasons, you cannot name the best. I'm not asking you to name the worst by name, but by organization. Is like is the New York Times worse than the Washington Post? Is the Washington Post worse than the L.A. Times? Is NBC worse than all of them? How would you rank the worst worstitude? Uh, I, I would definitely put CNN at the top of that list uh, as the worst. They decided that they no longer wanted to be a news organization, that they wanted to be an attack dog for the Democrat Party, for the liberal elites, and that is what they have done. I think they decided they hated this president more than they loved this country, and they spend every single day, no matter how good things are going, attacking him. That doesn't mean that on occasion you don't have a couple of people on CNN who try to make the other side, try to make the other point, but by and large, I think they're one of the, the worst as a whole as an outlet. Did you ever socialize with any of these people? Certainly. I mean, we spent uh, a lot of our days together. I mean, that's one of the points I write about in my book. Uh, In particular, ahead of the Correspondence Center, um, the people that were in the room, Michelle Wolf excluded, we all knew each other. They, They knew me. I spent almost every day working back and forth with these people. I knew their hobbies. I knew their family stories. They knew mine. Um, I wasn't the outsider in that moment. And there's certainly some collegial moments that take place because you're traveling together. You're spending so much time working together that you have those moments. Um, And and I I try to paint that picture as well. But I was not the outsider that came into that room, which was another reason that moment was so disheartening is I was their invited guest sitting at that head table um, only to be mocked at the the worst way possible by another woman for my appearance, uh, for my makeup, everything. And, you know, to be in front of people that I considered in in large part my colleagues was, again, very frustrating and very disheartening. You will never get this question from anyone else. I'm warning you in (laughs) advance. But in light of what you just said, and my, my listeners know that I have a theory on this, there's a lot of meanness on the left. So I ask myself, and now I'm asking you, 
Do you think that mean people gravitate left or left makes decent people mean? That's, that may be one of the hardest questions I've had. <laughs> and I wouldn't have expected my hardest question to come from somebody who I usually align with. But, you know, I think that they are so focused on the destruction of people and it's all in the name of tolerance. As long as you agree with them, I've never seen a group of people like the far left. Certainly we have people on the far right that are very intense, very focused on their message, but the far left, like you said, is so angry and so negative that they're willing to burn cities to the ground, willing to see innocent people hurt all in the name of getting their message out there. And I find it, again, a very sad place in America. I think it's one of the reasons this election is so important, so consequential, is that we are at a crossroads of either continuing as a country of safety and security and prosperity, or we're going to move to the left under Joe Biden. Um, And not even necessarily because he's so far radical, although I think he is, but because he's so afraid to stand up to the people that are. And if we don't have somebody in that place that's willing to take on that negativity, willing to take on that anger that we have in President Trump, I'm very afraid of what America looks like if they get control and they get to continue to bully Americans from coast to coast. How well did you know President Trump prior to being appointed? You know, I'd gotten to know him a little bit. We first met in 2015, actually, when my dad was running against him and uh, spent some time with him at some of the debates and the cattle call events where all of the candidates gathered together and got to know him a little bit there and a lot more in 2016 once I joined his campaign. But I hadn't spent a significant amount of time with him until I started in the White House. And um, pretty early on, even as the deputy press secretary, got to spend quite a bit around the time around the president in those early days. And certainly once becoming the press secretary, almost every single day for a little over two years, I was either with him or talking to him by phone and communicating with him in in some way. So quite a bit of time over the course of, of the three and a half years I worked for him. So how did your view of him evolve? Well, I knew him uh, from certainly kind of the TV version of Donald Trump, uh, a bigger-than-life personality. Uh, I can be the first to tell you that doesn't change from the big stage to the behind-the-scenes. He is a very engaging, charismatic, fun person to be around. I think the person that you see at the president's rallies where he's entertaining and telling stories um, and telling a very specific and direct message to his audience is very much what he's like behind the scenes. But I also got to see the softer side of the president when I sat in the Oval Office with him as he made condolence calls to families who had lost a son in uh, Afghanistan, or when I traveled with him all over the world, I went to more than 20 countries with the president and sat at the table with him while he was negotiating with world leaders. And so I got to see those different moments as well. And what I saw was somebody who loves this country is fighting ferociously for America and speaking out for people that don't have the ability to speak for themselves and certainly not with the microphone that he does. I happen to agree with you. And I, of course, uh, have not, I've never met the president, actually, and I agree with you. 
So we might uh, need to change that. Uh, I'm ambivalent <laughs> <laughs> because um, I only want to do it. I don't want to do it to have a photo up with the president. I would only want to meet him if I felt that it was it was worth his time uh, to to have such a meeting. But in, in any event, it's not here or there. So, how do you explain the hatred? Well, I think in in large part it's because the Democrats have been moved so far to the radical left. And they have somebody standing in the way of pushing that agenda down people's throats. But even more than that, President Trump has challenged every major institution in our country, whether it's the media, Hollywood, uh, the university systems, all of these people who have collectively come together to try to shove that far left agenda down our throats. And the president said, whoa, 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 that's not happening. And he does it with such a fervor and such a fight that. He's actually winning. Nobody expected him from those groups to win in 2016. And when he did, they tried to take it away from him. But he did not cower. He kept fighting back and kept fighting back. And we haven't seen somebody like that who's so willing and able to challenge those institutions and fight back in a really long time. And I think that's one of the reasons they don't like him. He also proved he didn't need them so often. People in politics need the press to get elected. They need the special interest. And Donald Trump said, you know what? I can do this without you. He's gone around them, and it infuriates them that he does it, and he fights back against them, and he does it without needing them at all. That's a good answer. They charge him with constantly lying. What's your response to that? Look, I think if anybody has lied and has a credibility issue, it's the people that peddled this fake Russia witch hunt for over two years, promising to produce evidence, promising that there was something there, promising that this president had done something he shouldn't have and that they were going to take him down. And they spent every single day perpetuating that fake story. And it turned out not only did it not happen, but how much corruption there was and how big and wide the problem is. We still don't know yet, but we're learning more every day that the corruption that existed was actually on the other side of people colluding to try to take the president down instead of the narrative that they were constantly pushing. That's right. If if people are even informed of it. But as you pointed out, if all they do is watch CNN, they don't have a clue. Which is a dangerous thing, and I, I would uh, thankfully their ratings aren't that high, so they're not that many people watching. But too many people, I think, are being fed uh, bad information and just a negative approach to how to look at this country. And I think that that's a sad thing that they're so willing to push such a divisive message every day on their network. How did Kim Jong Un strike you? <laughs> it was an interesting meeting, to say the least. Um, you know, unlike any experience I've ever had, the tension walking in, the anticipation, all extremely high. I was one of seven people to re- represent the United States delegation at the bilateral lunch. And um, I thought the president did a masterful job in that in that time frame of weaving in things that were of interest to him to talk about while also staying ultimately focused on the key message and the key takeaway that he wanted from that meeting. And that was to let them know and remind them 
that we wanted them to denuclearize. Here's what your country can look like if you do. But if you don't, the sanctions and the pressure is staying on and will remain where we are. And I thought the president did a great job of weaving those things in, keeping the conversation going, developing a very difficult relationship um, and making some progress. Certainly, no one is under the illusion that this is a done deal or an easy process. Getting somebody to give up nuclear weapons is almost always impossible. But the president got our hostages back, got our remains back and has made some progress in that relationship. And I think it was a good thing for him to take that meeting and to try to push forward in the denuclearization process. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, speaking for myself, is the name of her book, Well Worth Your Read. Beautifully printed, by the way, which is very uncommon for publishers. And it's subtitled Faith, Freedom, and the Fight of Our Lives Inside the Trump White House. So I think everybody who admired you, I'm one of them for your daily gladiatorial battle, wondered, was there a toll or did you, are you able to disconnect when you leave? There's certainly a a toll. Um, One just, I think, physically, mentally, emotionally of of working 20-hour days, um, 24-7, on call 365 days a year at the highest level of in very stressful situations. And so certainly there's a toll. But at the end of the day, um, I had a family that loved me, a faith that defined me. And those are the things that helped me get through each day. I didn't go into that room waiting for the New York Times or the Washington Post to write a story to tell me who I was. I knew that before I ever stepped foot in there. And I think that was one of the reasons I was able to do that for as long as I was. And one of the reasons I was able to fight back in the way that I was, because I knew that when I walked out, whether I was the White House press secretary or just plain old Sarah, I had a family that was going to support me and be there for me and a faith and a creator who had a plan and a purpose for me. And having that in my uh, armor on the front end made all the difference in the world. Why did you leave? Well, I have three kids. They're eight, six, and five. And, you know, a lot of people can be the White House press secretary. Only one person can be the mom to my kids. And after two and a half years in the White House, another year on the Trump campaign, I wanted to spend some time um, with my kids in a more substantial way and also before they turned into teenagers and didn't want to be seen with me. So I had to uh, strike while the iron was hot and get in there while they still liked me. So that, that, was, that uh, is very wise. <laughs> that was a good and wise decision. So how has that been? I mean, to go from a universal international spotlight daily to mom, how has the transition been? You know, it's been amazing to get to have that quality time with my kids. There are days certainly where you're like, oh, I want to be in like the heart of the battle. I want to be in the middle of the action. But then there are other days where you're like, oh, I'm glad I'm not in the middle of the action. Um, It's been really great for our family and um, nice to be back home in Arkansas out of the D.C. swamp. We moved up for that job and moved back as soon as we were done. It's great to be back home among friends and family. And, um, you know, I still get to be part of the process, both on Fox News and joining shows like this, writing my book, 
and helps me still get out there and talk about a message that's so important for our country. Sounds good to me. I'll tell you this. If uh, Arkansas decides to secede again, I will join you. I'll move there. <laughs> I, I'd like us to, to keep fighting the, the good fight. Uh, I think we're, we're lucky we get to live in the greatest country on earth, and I want to see us keep fighting for what matters, and Arkansas included. Well, that, that's certainly true. You should know I have said all of my broadcasting career, the North saved the Union in the 19th century. The South will save it in the 21st. So when you say that you uh, find joy in returning to Arkansas, I, I truly know what you're talking about. It's a, it's a wonderful and amazing place to call home. Well, God bless you, and I, I can't recommend your book too highly. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, speaking for myself, Faith, Freedom, and the Fight of Our Lives Inside the Trump White House. Thank you, Sarah. It's, I hope we speak again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was an honor. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Hugh Hewitt for townhall.com. The signing of the Abraham Peace Accords at the White House, presided over by President Donald Trump, on September the 15th, greatly enhances the prospects for a general peace in the Middle East. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, joined by the foreign ministers of the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, were welcomed for the signing ceremony that is the crowning diplomatic achievement of the Trump presidency. The president has also overseen the destruction of ISIS and the dispatching of the Iranian terrorist mastermind Qasem Soleimani. But giving Trump the credit he deserves is too painful for many in the blue bubble media. Nevertheless, the treaty President Trump midwife between the UAE and Israel, followed by one by Bahrain and Israel, collectively called the Abraham Accords, will fill a large room in a future Trump presidential library. Oman, Sudan, and even Saudi Arabia may follow in a second Trump term. A Biden presidency could shatter this momentum, reverting to the appeasement of Iran that marked the Obama-Biden era. For now, though, the signing agreement at the White House is a cause for great celebration. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.